Welcome to episode one of File Underwater, the Duck Feed show examining America's finest rock band, R.E.M. This show is made possible by our patrons at patreon.com forward slash duckfeedtv. Thank you very much. Uh, If you would like to support the network and support this show, content like this, uh, you can head over there, see what we have on offer. Even as little as a dollar a month makes a big difference. We thank you very much. Cole Ross. And you're listening to the first episode of File Underwater, an REM podcast. Uh, yes. The show where Cole and I convince you that <laughs> REM is the greatest American rock band. Well, I, I don't know if I took that <laughs> position. <laughs> yeah, I, oh. I, I feel like there's a good argument to be made. Oh, there is. Yeah. yeah. For, for Not, sure. you know, keep in mind, lots of greatest you know, American. Mm-hmm. So qualifier. Yeah. Uh, rock band qualifier. Not like, you know, it's not uh, uh, Paul Simon. I'm not saying greatest American songwriter. Right. Greatest American rock band. Yeah. I, I don't know that I necessarily disagree with you. I just feel bad making our opening salvo something that... Uh, the... <laughs> I, I did that on purpose. Okay. The, the, cool. yeah, I was, yeah, I was, I was just doing it to make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, the, um, yeah but this is our, our uh, chronological exploration of R.E.M. Yeah. So this is going to be kind of a limited series. Like there's a there's a definite end to this, but it is something we've wanted to do for a while. So if you're listening to the show and you're not familiar with the other things that we've done that we do, Gary and I, we do a podcast network called DuckFeed.tv where we normally talk about video games, but sometimes we get wildly afield and talk about uh, different stuff, different media. And we're only able to do this show because of the support that we get on the Patreon and just kind of the general support for um, moving to talk about different stuff. So REM, that's something that we have in common, right, Gary? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Big, you know, both of us are big fans. There's also kind of a niche for this. Um, I know that uh, when, and this is a very, very different show, but um, on the Earwolf show, they have the their U2 show, the You yeah. Talking U2 to Me, which I'm a big fan of, is way, way goofier mm-hmm. uh, than, than I was thinking about this. But this is, that's the other band that I'm like, you know, Oh, like there should be an REM version of this. Mm-hmm. It's like the American U2, which is like a way damning <laughs> thing to say. Like I, I think REM is a lot better than U2. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, you know, so there's a, a niche for it. Um, and when Cole says limited series, um, we have, you know, tw- there's 21 years of REM mm-hmm. uh, to talk about and uh, a lot of studio albums, a lot of things. So it's it's still going to be kind of a, a decently linked series, but yeah. it does have an end. Yes. Uh, date and site, which I think is kind of cool. We'll have this thing that you could, you know, put on a shelf like this uh, kind of a record. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, of the band and exploration yeah yeah so i mean does it make sense to talk about our histories with the band like wh- why us right yeah I mean, I, well <laughs> i was kicked out because i wanted to start farming um <laughs> like i no longer wanted to be in the band i just thought it'd be good to be a farmer okay and i yeah. took a different name 
uh, and started podcasting right around the time huh. uh, in 2001. Yeah. yeah. Uh, really traded yeah. down, didn't you? <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, I shaved the spot between my eyebrows and then, uh, and then changed my name. Yeah. To, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, so REM, uh, yeah, you, um, you you go first, then we'll we'll talk about our our yeah. REM histories. Oh, for 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 sure. So I um I, I'm young. Uh, I was I was born in 1987, uh, kind of kind of at the tail end of the IRS uh, kind of kind of era. Um, so it doesn't make a lot of sense that I I don't know I don't know like they 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 were huge. They've been huge for pretty much my entire life. But I very <laughs> from a very young age latched on to REM as just kind of sounding right. In terms of like the music that I wanted to listen to, like, I don't know, this is going to be very embarrassing for anybody who comes at this legit, but I, I I think the first time I was exposed to them was like hearing it's the end of the world as we know it on the Tommy Boy soundtrack or something. Mm. But like, I got that CD and I listened to that particular track over and over again because I liked that song so much and just kind of getting exposed to the mid nineties and, you know, everything that kind of like called back from that on you know mtv and vh1 it just it just kind of felt right so i was the weird eighth grader who was walking around listening to rem as opposed to kind of just the uh the the, the trash fire that was like music from 1999 to 2001 mm. yeah so i you know i i was it just it just kind of fit and that, that those are kind of my bo- my bona fides yeah yeah it is um you know i the I didn't get into it. I mean, it could, that could totally be worse. Like you could have gotten into it through like the friend soundtrack or, or like the Batman and Robin <laughs> yeah. soundtrack or yeah. something. Uh, you know, but so, so I got into it, uh, you know, the, the very, I'm, I'm trying to think back to the, the first song mm. that I heard. Um, it was probably, uh, losing my religion mm. if I had to guess, or maybe stand. So it was like a single from green or out of time and a uh, real similar where I was just like, Oh, this is what music should sound like, should yeah. sound like. Um, and, uh, I got, uh, unreasonably obsessed uh, <laughs> with the band and kind of have been during that entire time. Like I uh, would go and, uh, you know, this was a, a, you know, Christmas, I would get a tape, you know, mm-hmm. get a, get an REM tape. Like that was a, you know, all I asked for. Um, I poured over uh, the, the liner notes and the, the art. Um, I would uh, go to the bookstores in our, our my hometown uh, and this was, uh, boy, like this was like 13 year old me, 12 year old me. Yeah. So we, we both hit it about the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, di- just different eras yeah, of just shift, shifted by about seven years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I go to the bookstore and I would look up, uh, in like the, the rock criticism section <laughs> yeah. and just kind of, you know, flip through interviews, things like, you know, buy magazines cause they had them on the cover. I remember, um, my mom, I was sick once and, uh, she wanted to buy me a magazine uh, and she didn't really look in the inside of it. And she bought me a, uh, a magazine that had REM on the cover, but it was a guitar player magazine. Oh yeah. If you remember those, they just had tab. Yeah. And then yeah. that's how you got guitar tab before, uh, before the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just had three REM songs in it. And I was still like way into it and I had mm-hmm. no idea how to play guitar. I still don't know how to play guitar, <laughs> but I was just like reading the lyrics and kind of like, imagining what the music sounded like compared to the position of the, you know, spatially the notes, mm-hmm. things like that. Like it was just, you know, insane, yeah. uh, insane. It was the, uh, it's not my, you know, but in my first kind of three favorite bands, yeah. uh, REM was the the biggest and earliest, mm-hmm. uh, and predated, you know, uh, Nirvana and they might be giants, which are the other two kind of the Holy Trinity of <laughs> bands when I was, you know, a, a early tween. Yeah. But REM was the first and I went, uh, 
ridiculously deep. Yeah. So uh, reveal was the first album or one of the first albums I bought kind of under my own steam, mm. you know, and that is less embarrassing than the other one that I bought under my own steam, which was Californication by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Which two, one two, of those? Two, will... panda, two paths, two paths yes. separated yeah, in, the woods. in the wood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. yeah, there's somebody out there who's making the argument that Californication is a better album just because reveal is like, you know, not top tier REM. Right, like, right. Reveal is, is, is semi unfairly maligned. I think so too. Uh, yeah. But it's not, it's also has some problems. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, but yeah, the, I, the first uh, first REM I think I bought, and this was the first album I bought with my own money, was Automatic for the People, mm. uh, which after this point, because I didn't, you know, back in the the out of time kind of days, I did not earn money. Uh, but the first time I bought an album with my own money, and it the the tape was on a, it was green plastic, mm. like translucent, like beautiful translucent green plastic. Nice. And I have a very distinct uh, memory of of wearing that out. Um, I talked about uh, on Abject Suffering listening to Green on repeat <laughs> uh, while playing Arrow the Acrobat. Yeah. And how those two things are are intertwined are, are linked in your head. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Like just REM was the band that got me like listening to music, like laying on my stomach in bed, reading the liner notes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or, you know, read, reading the lyrics, uh, which R- reveal was, I think, the first one that they put the lyrics on um, inside of it. So that was a good a, a, a good little fit. But like, yeah, like it just established a lot of patterns for me. The um. I have a uh, a specific memory of before bed for about a year, um, reciting the lyrics in my head to all of the REM songs that I that I had in order. Oh yeah. So like to go to sleep, I would run through the lyrics of Side A Chronic Town uh, <laughs> through. You know, it was probably uh, uh, Life Search Pageant. Uh, that you know is probably about where I got to. Yeah. At that point, but just kind of going through them, you know, I had it, I had it all memorized uh, at the time. And it just, you know, it's still like I can still sing along to just about, you know, all these songs. Like I know these these songs instinctually. Yeah. Until I heard them mm-hmm. so many trillions of times. Yeah. And if you don't um, know the words, it's not that big of a problem. Yeah. And for either for the singer or for you, <laughs> uh, which is great. Yeah. The uh, something else I want to talk about too, real quick is one of the things that really appealed to me about these guys early on, and I still it makes this uh, feel fun and good to do the show, is that uh, REM has so, have such a great uh, regular dudeness. Yep. To them, like my, Michael Stipe has this kind of weird art fuck background. Mm-hmm. Peter Buck sometimes pretends to be a rock star, and it's kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, like it's just what if there were four nice dudes? Yep. Who like don't, you know, didn't get crazy, like full of themselves, did not, uh, you know, go out of their mind with fame. And they're oftentimes like held up as like the example of the good, you know, the people who who didn't lose their mind Mm -hmm. uh, getting famous. And uh, I just have such I react to that so strongly as an admirable quality yeah like the, the the biggest change that they underwent was they just got really politically active which yes. okay fine good I, I agree with the with with what they decided to do so yeah that's that, that's fine and good yeah it's it's they didn't uh they just don't have that kind of because there's people i think you know there are the people who are just like they've got a little even if they don't they they look down on on the actual jared Leto joker mm-hmm. they have just a little bit of that in it where it's like i just want you know i kind of want a rock star it's kind of dangerous and sexy mm-hmm. like nope like, give me Mike Mills <laughs> dressed for Sunday school yep. who just wants to make good music and like because you, you get like better work out of that. You get mm-hmm. less of these kind of like the desperate hell 
kind of existential, you know, uh, misfires yeah. and stuff that you can get from this stuff. So just kind of having like four nice regular dudes, mm-hmm. um, it's just like that's the kind of thing I want to spend time with. Maybe it speaks to being older and blander. Uh, I, I mean, but I like that that appealed to me way back then, way back when too. Yeah. You know, and they're like, you know, we we make jokes on other shows about me being unstuck in time. When I was when I was thirteen or fourteen, like I gravitated toward this just because they were kind of regular and dorky. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm way into just kind of the 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 blandness. The part of it, there are people who like, who listen to this and listen to the music and listen to the show that. Uh, that will be a huge turnoff for them, you know, and, and we'll just think like these guys are really safe and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like one in the context of, of history, not really, you know, particularly like it sounds some of it sounds kind of quaint now, but it was yeah. really neat when it came out. Uh, but two, um, you know, there's there is an appeal to that, like without going full adult contempo. And when yeah. we get to the later albums or even in some of the mid albums where they get to that point, that is kind of where they stumble. Like that's where they lose me a little bit yeah. is when they kind of go full adult contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of like. You know, making uh, vibrant music while living an adult contemporary lifestyle is very appealing <laughs> to 36 year old me uh, and was appealing to 13 year old me as well. Yeah. And something that has kind of stuck out as I've, you know, kind of taken a dive headfirst into the history of the band and has kind of compounded my admiration for them is that they work or, you know, especially at their height, they worked really, really hard. Yeah. Like the amount yeah. of touring that they did, the amount of just kind of like getting down and being kind of humble, you know, having this <laughs> these uh, humility tours throughout uh, kind of markets that would otherwise not have supported them if they didn't just go there and like put in the hours like that is tremendously attractive to me in yeah. in, in any kind of creative endeavor, but especially in. You know, when when you look at acts of the time and just all these other all these other things that might have flamed out because of either lack of commitment or flakiness, like these yeah. guys, they they put in the hours in a way that just uh, makes it all seem incredibly admirable to me. It's 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 set up a foundation where they're kind of like built to last because uh, you know the first you know major album, which we're not going to talk about today. Uh, it's going to be episode three of the show is Murmur, and uh, that was three years into the band. Yeah. You know, that that's kind of a long time, like, uh, you know, for a band that ultimately makes it, it's not, you know, it's not a long time for a band, you know, like a lot of times bands just kind of put out EPs and do shows and stuff, but they just, you know, played pizza places and did these little tiny regional tours for a long time, played to lots of, you know, the sound guy and seven people (laughs) shows and just really put in the work. And like the other aspect about, uh, this, you know, coming to it and reading about it is that it just like it really, really makes me like really painfully nostalgic yeah. uh, for, you know, for being in a band and, and having a tiny, tiny, tiny taster slice of that, of that life, you know, and just the, this kind of scene and stuff. So that's why part of the reason why we're not talking about, you know, this first episode is not record one. Um, it's about us, about why we're doing the show and about uh, how the band kind of started. Yeah. Um, you know, because that stuff's important. Like it's actually, you know, to know why this stuff, again, this, this kind of seems like uh, stolid kind of dad rock. The reason why it's, you know, it's vital. It's kind of important to recognize the beginnings of the, as this kind of college dance band mm-hmm. uh, that they, they were. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so there's, there, there's a little bit more intro matter. We should, we, we should do um, one, explain the name for anybody who might not know. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So this is, this was the alternate title for reckoning. 
um, that they were they were going to call it, and it says this on the record sleeve as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I like that REM does is that they don't, uh, you know, they do these weird little things with their their material, you know, their record sleeves and, and stuff like that. Like they don't uh, they don't have A sides and B sides. They don't, you know, they don't do that. They name their sides after different things because you can play the records usually, and you'll hear this if you listen to the them on CD. Mm-hmm. Is they usually have like two, you know, opening track in the middle of the record as well. Yeah, uh, it feels like it's because you can play them in, in either order. Right, and uh, that album, you know, a lot of the songs, you know, were about were about water, and they wrote that on there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that was a good name for for a thing. Yeah, and we decided not to go with file under fire because every show on the network cannot have fire in the title. <laughs> it's true, and also <laughs> Reckoning is a much better album than Document. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, and then uh, talk about the passion was the working title for this for a long time, and um, that to me, like, it seems it's a little obvious, and it also makes it sound religious to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a little on the nose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we decided not to go, yeah, not to go on that. Yeah. And the, and the joke title I never proposed fables of the deconstruction, um, fables no. of the deconstruction is actually like, I think that's pretty funny. I don't know <laughs> if I would have went for it, but I think that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it just, um, uh, I don't know. I don't like the word deconstruction, but, uh, that, that is, that is what I have. It's, it's, it's a little, it's a little pretentious, yep. <laughs> but it, it's, it's also funny. So yeah. it's, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and also, uh, we should talk about our sources too, because yes. we're kind of pulling from different biographies of the band. There are a lot of them. Um, I am pulling from uh, a book that has kind of been revised over the years a lot by Tony Fletcher, uh, originally called Remarks, and then it turned into Remarks Remembered. And now there's a print version called Perfect Circle that goes from the very, very beginning of the band all the way up uh, to, to, to the end. Um, if you get it on Amazon, you want to get the uh, the Perfect Circle version because that is the complete one. The Kindle one only goes up, I think, through Reveal. So okay. that is a that, that is a pro tip. I thought there were two different books at the start. Uh, what are you pulling from, Gary? Um, so I read uh, I got two different books. Uh, they are older, so I need to actually brush up my reading when we get to the later albums. Um, but I'm pulling from uh, Talk About the Passion, R.E.M. and Oral History mm-hmm. by Denise Sullivan. Um, and then Inside Out, the story behind every song, um, which is uh, literally, you know, that's I really wanted to find something that was just a, a song by song. Mm hmm kind of guide it's um it's funny because it, it just kind of pulls from interviews where people have talked about the songs and it's it varies greatly in, in the usefulness of it yeah um the oral history one the new sullivan book is really really good yeah uh again forgetting that feeling of like the scene you know around the, these times yeah um and the you know the stories behind the song one is good as well it's just uh there's a, something that I noticed in it is Peter Buck gives a lot of interviews where he brags about how little time it takes to complete a song yeah. in a way that sounds like he's dismissing it before the interviewer can. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we recorded in like an hour. Like he, and he does, it comes up like 20 times. Yeah. Yeah. We just got in there. We like wrote and recorded in like 15 minutes. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't I, even care. I, I, thought you know? the, I thought of the lyrics on the way to the studio. Yeah. It is 100%. You know, it's like, yeah, like Michael just kind of wrote something down on the back of a pizza box. We just kind of kicked it out. I don't care. <laughs> like he, he's constantly doing that. And I don't really get it. I don't really understand what it is, but <laughs> it keeps coming up uh, to a magazine called Bucket Full of Brains, which is not a <laughs> thing anymore. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of inter- there's a lot of material pulled from like a song by song. But yeah. I remember uh, when when I first got um, Dead Letter Office, it has notes from Peter Buck on mm-hmm. each song. Yeah. And I remember wanting like an entire kind of book of that. So that was part mm-hmm. of my, my desire to get something like this. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the a lot of the um, kind of narrative about REM is is through Peter Buck because he is the only person who really talks. Uh, Michael Stipe famously um, kind of mysterious, like he built that up very early on. Mike Mills is more of kind of like a behind the scenes, like oh, just focused on the craft guy. 
and um, Bill Barry is, you know, again on that farm. So Peter Buck very early on kind of became the press emissary. So yeah. a lot of what we're, what we're going to get, uh, you know, kind of comes through him. It's all, he's the one who like out of all of them, I think he's the one that was kind of into being a rock star. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, and that's uh, it's, it's, you know, at times charming, at times frustrating, but like, it is. It does mean that he's real open and and willing to talk about this stuff. Yeah, and and uh, and also uh, from the mid '90s to the mid 2000s, I think that he just came with the studio for anybody who booked time to record an indie band. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> he Peter just Buck like showed up and like, oh, our, our Peter Buck is over here in the corner. Use him if you he's, want. <laughs> that's him in the corner. That's, that's the, uh, Jeez. Uh, he's uh, he's also the one who, after the breakup of the band, uh, is the most active. Like. Mike Mills and uh, Michael Seif have been kind of dipping their toes in some things. Mm-hmm. Bill Berry has done a couple of small reunion things that they've done mostly for charity and stuff. Again, yeah, very politically yeah. minded. Uh, but Peter Buck has kind of like he's really solo albums. Um, he's done some stuff. Yeah. Uh, since then, I haven't listened to any of those. I don't I have no idea if they're any good. I think they only came out on vinyl, but I'm sure they're up on mm. YouTube. Um, so the uh, yeah. So we're doing that. We also are using, are using YouTube a mm-hmm. lot because there are a lot of old concerts, documentaries. Uh, REM interviews on MTV, things like that that are available. And uh, this show, instead of having show notes, uh, is going to have a suggested listening section on the web page. So if you're listening to this only through your podcatching device, um, if you actually go to uh, fileunderwater.net, um, you can check on the entry for each show and see uh, you know, a playlist of the album and then some talk of B-sides, outtakes, concerts, and stuff that we also talked about in the show. Yeah, uh, YouTube, I-, I cannot imagine doing this show without without as complete of a record as YouTube provides. It would be the like VHSs. Like, I used to mm-hmm. have uh, all the concert films and video compilations that they put out, hmm. uh, and it would just be bonkers. Like, I would be <laughs> mailing you a VHS back and forth. <laughs> like, it, w- it would not be, uh, it would not work. Yeah. Um, so YouTube is, is hugely useful for this, especially uh, since, you know, we are going kind of year by year and we want to talk about the stuff that was left off of albums as well as what ended up on there, because then that stuff's kind of important. Again, mm-hmm. looking at the scene, not just the document that they put out. So yeah. if there's a song that they didn't put on the record, but played live every night on tour for two years, like mm-hmm. it's still worth talking about for sure. Um, also, uh, kind of just, uh, you, Gary, you and I have talked about this. I don't know how it's going to shake out in the final edit. I don't even know who's doing the final edit, but, um, we're not going to be including like examples of everything we talk about. Like yes. it's going to be, uh, kind of very scant. This is a companion. Um, if you're going to go out and like, you know, find this stuff, uh, it is not going to be like a very, um, kind of exhaustively edited together. Like, and now here, here's four bars from boxcars. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then part of that is because uh, you guys can find that stuff. Again, we're going to have that suggested listening. Part of it is to make this sustainable. Yeah. Um, and part of it is to make this, again, that kind of, uh, uh, a, like you said, like a companion piece to the music, which has never been more readily available. Like, I I would never have thought when I was younger that YouTube would end up being like the most important resource for music for me. Yep. Uh, but it is 100% the ability to pull up any song I ever want to listen to instantly uh, is is a real a real blessing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we, uh, you know, they're not saying there will be no music, uh, included ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, it's going to just be us talking yeah. and, uh, yeah, you can check out those YouTubes. Please do. Um, so yeah. we should probably talk about the individual members of the band. Um, yeah, because... we, at least, uh, at least as guys and then kind of uh, where they came from. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about Peter Buck so far. He is kind of the central personality around this. Uh, and I put well, an emphasis on personality. Go ahead. 
let's uh, let's let's back up just a little bit because there are yeah. probably people. Um, some people have said like, I'm looking forward to the show. Um, I don't really know anything about the band. So mm-hmm. Peter Buck plays guitar. Yes, uh, I don't think we mentioned that. It's it's a real basic thing. He's the guitar <laughs> player of the band, um, and we will talk about him a little bit and kind of his signature sound now. Yeah, but I yeah. want to. We should let everyone know who does what because yes. they might not know. Mm-hmm. Uh, True, true. Um, and also, like, we're not going to say, like, it's not really readily available too much who wrote what songs. Like, this is not a... They, well, good. It's, part, it's part of that thing with them them being kind of, you know, the good band, like yeah. the, the, the humble band where they, every, every band member is credited as songwriter for every song. Yes. Uh, because, and when you start reading these books and stuff I've read, like, how collaborative it was is mm-hmm. really, really cool to hear. Yeah. Uh, really. Because it feels, it's not lip service. It's not like Michael Stipe doing everybody a favor by, uh, <laughs> you know, letting them. Uh, so there are a couple of exceptions. Like every once in a while, we get some bummers from the drummer. Yeah. But for the most part, like it is, uh, uh, everyone just kind of worked together mm-hmm. on everything. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is, this is a band that like very pointedly rules by consensus and closes rank. Like yes. they, you know, <laughs> there, there's very little in the biographical information until you get like, eh, like midway through the IRS years about any kind of conflict between them. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to cut you off. No, no, that's, that, that's perfectly fine. That, that, that is a good point of order. It is, uh, it is easy to start taking this stuff um, kind of for granted. So Peter Buck born 1956 in Los Angeles, and then kind of eventually all these people made their way to, to Athens, Athens, Georgia, um, either mm. through family or through um, kind of choice school or to go to school. Yeah. 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 And you know, his, his kind of arrival in that scene was just kind of um organizing music events and also working at a record store so like he was kind of at the hub of this place making a lot of friends with people who were kind of part of this scene yeah yeah and just kind of, yeah just kind of a you know part of the scene like people would go into this record store obviously and this is you know this is how he ended up you know meeting people in the band uh for the, for the most part mm-hmm. um he's got a very distinctive you know one of the the signature elements of of the REM sound is uh is peter buck other than obviously uh mike you know michael stipe and then the secret secret weapon mike mills <laughs> yep. um but peter buck uh real jangly um yeah, yeah. Real, a lot of open chords um a lot of like arpeggios uh it doesn't often take the lead no, in no. songs um it, it provides kind of a texture mm-hmm. uh to to what's going on the, the, um and he's kind of famous for that yeah the the effect is that he's almost kind of constantly soloing a little bit but it never it never rises to that like he never jumps to the front of any given mix even though he might be the loudest thing in that it is mostly yeah. just kind of like to lay down <laughs> you know almost like a background like this is this is a band that has gotten gotten by with no lead guitar like it is again just rhythm. kind of shadow you know uh uh reflecting mm-hmm. how the band is as personalities yeah. yeah you know this idea that like no no there's not a lead instrument like every once in a while you know there'll be a song where it's like oh this is dominated by this but mm-hmm. for the most part it all kind of comes together to a greater whole which is like such a respectable thing as somebody who has done music before uh you know like trying to write a song or work with people in a band where their end goal is their part not mm-hmm. what the thing sounds like uh is makes you want to pull your hair out like yeah. it is uh so real, real quick digression. Like I know where, you know, but, <laughs> um, when, uh, one of the guy who I was in a band with, I won't name him, uh, played drums, uh, in this band and was very frustrating. And we did, uh, our Halloween cover set. We covered, uh, Brian, Eno like rock songs hmm. and we did, uh, uh, oh boy, here come the worm jets. Um, and here come the worm jets doesn't have percussion for most of the song. Mm-hmm. Um, like when it comes in, uh, and he would not not play during the beginning of it. Oh no! And I wanted to fucking wring his neck, like just 
no 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 you can't do that like it just it literally begins with just that you know one synthesizer line or like the really really fuzzy guitar with the synthesizer under it and like it's just that for a long time you know and it builds like we're getting we're getting to you uh you know and just uh and what it the reason why it was so frustrating is because it was just uh i'm bored i don't care about the end result you know and nobody in this band does that right uh so yeah um, because I'm a, I'm not, I'm not a great guitar player, but I'm a bit of a guitar nerd. Um, Peter Buck got to start playing on a Telecaster. So like that probably informed a lot of his, a lot of his tone decisions that was stolen. Um, <laughs> because mm-hmm. basically all these people were living on couches for a good deal of the late seventies and early eighties. His, his distinctive touring guitar is a Rickenbacker again, kind of this icon of, uh, of jangle pop almost this uh kind of semi semi hollow body rickenbacker kind of thing um you know again picking up from the from the beatles uh the beatles played a lot of rickenbackers but even though he played that a lot on tour he mostly in the studio uses a les paul so like at, pretty much after these first couple of years he is he's using a gibson les paul um whenever whenever you hear like something that is not an acoustic so yeah he also becomes kind of known for using uh, other stringed instruments yeah. a little bit later so he's you know the the guy who brought mandolin to you know rock pop music, yep. um, Michael Stipe, the uh, the lead singer of mm-hmm. the band, uh, who very very rarely will play other instruments for I would say ninety you know eight percent of the the songs just yeah. the singer, uh, born in Decatur nineteen sixty, um, was kind of an army brat, uh, moved around a lot uh, as a kid and uh, kind of just got into music kind of got into the idea of music uh, from Patti Smith's horses. Uh, television, uh, the band Wire, um, the common denominator between those bands is that none of them are technically proficient singers. Right. Um, he's talked to before about like, oh, you can just get up there and belt it out. <laughs> um, and that became really informative to, to kind of how he sings. Yeah. Um, and he is a real uh, rides that kind of, you know, art fuck line between <laughs> being very shy and also being eccentric, you know, so like wanting to be a little bit paid attention to, but also not wanting to be looked at. Mm hmm. You know, yeah, like when they would record albums, he would be over in the corner or in a stairwell while everybody yes. was doing it, but, especially early on. Yeah. yeah. But during live shows, he was very much front and center to the point where it was a curiosity for anybody who knew him outside of the band. Um, this incredibly shy guy, again, doing that normal kind of artist thing where they change context and then immediately turn into a different person dancing yeah. around, you know, like Mick Jagger. You know, yeah. You know, yeah. Or um, even I mean, just yeah, just like crazier and less sexier you know sexy than that just kind of like yeah. flailing yeah yeah like you know it's it like just uh it the 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 line goes like michael stipe and then tom york <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah um yeah and he so he went to athens uh for school after you know again he moved around uh, with his family but he went to athens schools to uh to do visual art mm-hmm. uh but was kind of shitty at it um <laughs> he was you know, good at convincing uh, his teachers that he wasn't shitty at it he yeah, says ex- yeah yeah there, there's a the, you know there's that that kind of art school cliche as well mm-hmm. he's also notably the last person to drop out to make a full band right um he kind of held on to the dream of a more traditional kind of college and and kind of a, a you know an art job life uh you know longer than anyone else yeah michael Stipe, you know the other kind of real defining thing that really jumps out at you is his singing style which again uh like you're talking about just kind of belts it out um, it's also very often very indistinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a real cliche of this band, you know, um, that you can't understand what Michael Stipe is saying. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and he, he often writes a lot of the lyrics for this, but the lyrics are pretty much, they lead with the sound 
first more than anything. He'll get in love with the way a certain phrase sounds and he'll get up there and kind of like murmur, murmur it out. Um, mm. No, no, no pun intended there. Even though he's singing very loud, like there's an awful lot of kind of just insistence from early producers of the band that there's no real treatment done. Like that is just how he sounds, even when he's singing loud and, you know, not actually enunciating, enunciating anything. And people would come up and say, oh, I really love when you say X, Y, Z. And he says, well, that's actually better than what, than what I was singing. So, yeah, let's go for it. Like everything about his presentation from the actual text of what he's putting out to the way he presents it and the way he sings it is is impressionistic. You know, it's um, and a lot of times and I love this, you know, reading this. I, I knew this from before. Like I read an R.E.M. biography when I was when I was young, when I was in my initial like mania. Mm-hmm. Um, but reading about it and just kind of reminding me that like a lot of times there isn't anything there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the fact that like the people, myself included, would kind of pour over these things and try to transcribe these lyrics and stuff. And there's they're literally just sounds like there's not a thing there. And that has become so uh, specifically musically to like what I like to do music wise, mm-hmm. really influential to what I appreciate and like like to make in that uh, the kind of you know emotional truth or a turn of phrase or something like that is significantly more important than a literal meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this is uh, you know really like doing this show or researching for the show and stuff is really unlocked. Like, oh, like going <laughs> forward, that's something that I like in all my lyrics mm-hmm. uh, that I listen to. Um, yeah. This is the beginning of that. Like, I am much more interested in kind of conveying a feeling than an actual story yeah. or a, a cognizant sentence. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 very much a, a deliberate choice. Like they say, you know, our w- w- what we're trying to accomplish is telling a story without telling a story. Yeah. You know, like just let's let, let's strip away all narrative. Let's strip away all perspective, even like there's no, you know, first or second person perspective in this and just present the like the like the, the emotional core of this thing. Yeah. And sometimes even just the words, like the sound of the word, mm-hmm. you know, just because that has its inherent an inherent beauty to it. You know, that it doesn't need the context of the surrounding words to to lean on. Right. You know, and that's just something I really, really respect. And being keyed into that, just kind of being able to have an instinctual way to to drill down to that <laughs> is something that he does as well as anyone. Yeah. I think. And one of the things that I noticed, uh, again, in the kind of listening for the show that I think is really impressive is when he contrasts that with uh, things that are very direct. Mm-hmm. So you'll get these R.E.M. songs that are just full of these things that feel like, you know, uh, metaphors from you know that are directly translated from another language or something like they feel <laughs> they have a kind of the cadence of a metaphor but there's nothing direct for them and then he'll just pop out and be like you know i'm sorry mm-hmm. you know or just pop out and put this very like plaintive plain love song generic lyric to something and the contract like he's really good at m- mixing and matching those things mm-hmm. uh and i i really really love the way that he kind of constructs that stuff yeah so yeah Pretty great. Yeah. When I was initially getting in, getting into the band, Michael Stipe was kind of my, my intro, his, his distinct vocal sound, like just, it wasn't like anything I'd heard in a lot of other stuff, especially, you know, on the radio or on, on MTV and just kind of, again, that lyrical fascination looking for something that might not have been there, but still being very happy with what I found. Yeah. You know, like, like, go ahead. it's the dark souls of vocalist. Like you get to, oh, you get to bring Christ. in your, <laughs> you, get, you get to bring in your own. Uh, but I mean, it's kind of true. Like he does, he hits that. It's like that 70% line, you know, mm-hmm. where like you, Oh, I'm going to be able to fill in the rest of this to kind of create my own meaning. But there, you know, there's something there. Yeah. Like he's, you know, uh, so there's a little bit of that, like bringing yourself to it. Mm-hmm. I also, and I really, really love the, the fact that he is not as technically proficient as like, you know, uh, uh, somebody who is like classically trained to, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's like a, there's junk 
<laughs> in there like there's some some kind of like kind of bad notes or some mm-hmm. kind of like stretches and stuff like that yeah, um, or, or just just uh phrases like intonations that just very slowly over the course of a phrase go off key stuff like that yes very that, very kind of like strident consonants and things like that put, put that in my veins like that is that is literally <laughs> what i want from a singer yep. so like you know in a weird way he is the er like lyricist and vocalist for me like as far as my taste mm-hmm. go yeah um mike mills uh, the aforementioned secret weapon for, 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 the band, he's the bassist and he, uh, he, he kind of early on was an ally of Bill Barry. There's fun biographical information there, but, uh, he was born in orange County and then ended up moving to Macon, Georgia as a baby. So he's effectively kind of a local, um, to, mm. to, 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 to the South. Um, and pretty much he's always been the goody two shoes. <laughs> like if this was a boy band, he would be like the button down repressed one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, he's a real dork. Yeah. Um, he's the, he's, I feel like he's, uh, consistently the dorkiest looking one, which I really, oh. you know, really appreciate, mm-hmm. um, you know, aviators, uh, <laughs> and stuff. He's yeah. also, I think, um, probably the most musically talented, uh, member of the band with, with that um, question. Yeah. Um, so he plays bass and keyboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff is, is more kind of more sophisticated than some of, some of the other things that are going on. Yeah. Um, compositionally, uh, and singing wise, like his voice is actually technically very good. Yeah. But kind of angelic. He, exactly. Like he's, he's got this awesome tenor and he comes from a family of vocalists. So you can kind of see like he comes by it honest, you know, mm-hmm. um, but he's pretty much always not in the background, but kind of acting as counterpoint. Um, oftentimes yeah. like singing a completely different melody in the background and in a different corner than, or yeah. sometimes in a different room than uh, the Michael and, Stipe is. Yeah. And, and, you know, Occasionally gets to take the lead. A lot of songs, though, will be kind of call and response or they kind of split the difference. Yeah. Um, and, you know, those are those kind of counter melodies and those kind of like really soaring, uh, almost like in some points, like kind of sounds Beach Boise. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the Beach Boise? Yeah. Yeah. Beach Boise, the, I, I know. Yeah. The Boise yeah. Beach. Yeah. The Boise Beach. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, uh, That's like the really shitty Jimmy Buffett like <laughs> bar. Oh, God. There. Like, uh, but like a lot of that stuff will kind of be some of the most affecting stuff that happens in a song, or at least the most melodically strong. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, he's really, really fantastic. I came to appreciate Mike Mills very, very late. Like in my, in my initial travails with the band, I mostly just liked his hair a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like post monster era, uh, Mike Mills. Like I, I, I really liked the steez that he was repping. Um, perm. <laughs> I don't know. It just, uh, it, it worked for me. Uh, but, um, but no, his, um, uh, but, but just like listening to the bass and this is something just in general, I never really paid a lot of attention to bass until, and you know, in, until kind of later in my music appreciation or whatever that's super a super shitty weird thing to say but there we go but um his bass lines are so melodic like it is he's he's kind of taking a taking a page from almost like the who a little bit in terms Mm -hmm. of in in terms of what he what he kind of brings to it and you just have to grab onto it and hold on like it is the the technically proficient underpinning of a lot of these songs especially the more rocking ones um that um you know, kind of is, is modest and hides a little bit, but is right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, what's going to kind of drive us forward. Yeah. Uh, as, as we go, um, Bill Barry, uh, also sings mm-hmm. a lot of those times. So a lot of those harmonies in the background, um, are, are Bill Barry, which I didn't really realize, yeah. uh, until literally researching for this song, the show, <laughs> uh, that he sang a lot and watching live footage. Cause he's kind of in the back, uh, drummers who sing along, you know, it's kind of rarer than, than, you know, otherwise, uh, than guitarist or whatever. 
And uh, just notice that that's actually uh, his voice in there as well. Mm-hmm. So um, he's born in Duluth, Minnesota in 1958, uh, moved kind of around the Great, La- Great Lakes area before his family settled in Macon to avoid the recession. Yeah, like and that is where the Rust Belt rot up there. Yeah. 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 And that's where he met uh, Mike Mills in high school. Yeah. Uh, they played uh, in a lot of bands together. It's kind of this like power rhythm section. Yeah. Uh, which is very cute. Um, best eyebrows in rock and roll. Oh, yeah. And uh, went on in a lot of kind of scene bands around Athens at this time. Uh, he drummed for and played for. So uh, Love Tractor specifically around the same time R.E.M. was getting off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that Bill Berry is underrated as a drummer. Uh, a yeah. lot of time, like just his uh, complete, um, completely solid um, kind of presentation of the stuff. And just like, he's not fancy. Like he's not out there again. No solos. Uh, that That is yeah. the rule in REM, no solos. But you listen to this and it is, it is very much, it is very much like a, a very technically proficient thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and as far as I, th- I mean, I think that out of all the members of the band, he is definitely the one who I don't want to say he brings the least because it's such like a skeleton, mm-hmm. you know, to the songs. But he is definitely the one who I've, I've noticed the least mm-hmm. as I go through. He's also the one and this is, you know, kind of unfair and it's looking forward. But like when there there is kind of a snoozer song, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times Bill Berry was really involved in the writing yeah. of it, uh, which I'm finding the stuff like songs I kind of like a little bit less yeah. uh, tend to be from Bill Berry, which is, you know, which is fine. You know, it, it, they, they ended up doing very well and other people love those songs. So that's just me. Yeah. Um, but he is, he's the one, um, he also, uh, ended up leaving the band. Um, we'll talk about that in a long, long time from now, <laughs> but he's the, uh, he left the band. The band continued as a trio Yeah. for a while after that. Yep. And, so. um, yeah, so th- this is a four piece band. Everybody kind of served, served their own role and they were together for, you know, about 15 years before before they had before bill barry left and kind of changed the makeup of it for for yeah. good really yeah 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 and they kind of didn't recover from that like they they kind of they ended on a note that is you know defiant and respectable mm-hmm. um as a thing but that really did kind of that perfect alchemy yeah. that they had uh, did kind of eventually crumble a little bit and you can you can hear it and yeah. and we'll talk about it. i'm looking forward to kind of talking about that with the full context of the show up to that point yeah uh, behind us um so let's talk about the formation of the band yeah. Um, so the band kind of got together uh, two and two. Um, so mm-hmm. P- P- Peter, uh, Peter Buck and Michael Stipe, uh, they played music, to get, music together kind of at the record store. Like it'd be after hours and they'd split a, a six pack. By playing um, music, we mean uh, listening to music. Yes. At that point. And like, uh, play, like play along and sing along like that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. That kind of thing. Because eventually they did start kind of writing songs together, but that was kind of they moved in together. Mm-hmm. Um, like Peter Buck noticed Michael Stipe because Michael Stipe would come in and, and like buy the weird records. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and he appreciated that. And uh, they decided to get a place together, which is just one of the many things that makes me so jealous of this like weird scene where <laughs> yeah. let's go live, you know, let's go live anywhere. And yeah, just, let, let, you know, let's just go live in this abandoned Southern Gothic church house. Yeah. <laughs> like the pictures of that is crazy. Yeah. Like that, that church. And it's just, it's like so run down and, and cool looking, but they uh-huh. lived in this church. Um, and, uh, then, uh, my, uh, like, as we mentioned, uh, Mike Mills and Bill Berry, uh, who were already friends and kind of an established <laughs> duo. Yeah. Like they, they, they kind of traveled around as like just this portable, this portable rhythm, r- r- rhythm section. Yeah. Um, that kind of plugged into different, to different acts. Uh, one of my favorite details, uh, Mike and Bill hated each other. Like, yeah. like Bill was a party kid. Mike was, you know, straight A student kind of person. And they like they they started working together by accident. Like they got to yeah. like there was this Southern boogie night at a like at like a local function or whatever, a very quaint kind of thing. And Bill shows up to play drums and boom, here's this person that he hates. 
yeah <laughs> um, uh but they work together um like they worked together well. kind of after that you know yeah, like yeah. ended up kind of you know having this this musical chemistry yeah like they were best um, friends decided to live, to, to, to live together and were kind of brought brought together with with peter and michael uh later on by kathleen o'brien kind of one of mm. these one of these scenesters around uh, around the athens scene we need to talk about the athens scene a, a, a yeah. little bit for this because it is it is weird and I initially had a lot of affection for it, but that cooled off as I as I got more information about the way they treated REM. It was weird. Like they didn't, uh, but there's so the psychology behind that feels so transparent. Mm-hmm. Like it's so like, oh, you guys got famous. Fuck you guys. Yeah, you know, is is what it feels like. It's still like as a, a seedbed for for art. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like vital and awesome. Yeah, to me, um, because uh, so it was, you know, college town, um, lots of places to play. Lots of, uh, you know, B-52s had made it like real big kind of at this point. They were kind of the first. Um, and there's some other bands around, you know, we mentioned uh, Love Tractor, uh, which Bill Berry played with mm-hmm. um, and Pylon. And they were all dance bands. Yeah. Um, like Pylon is like a drum and bass led kind of like shouty, yelpy dance band. Mm-hmm. And uh, Love Tractor is mostly instrumental kind of southern dance band. Yeah. And that was the thing. Like you would get together, you would uh, play in this club, you know, cover to get in the club was a dollar and <laughs> beers were 90 cents and you would go in and, and just get drunk and dance. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it's not in the books, but I just imagine people fucking <laughs> like, it's just like I, no one taught every, I feel like every single person has oral history and every single person <laughs> this thing are just, you know, talking around the fact that just like everyone is having the best fucking sex in this like mm-hmm. town. Yeah. I just, just, it just feels like a recipe for that, man. I, I don't know. <laughs> straight up Southern boogie, Jacob's ladder, stand up devil fucking. Yeah, just, just, you know, just tons and tons of, you know, bathroom cunnilingus. Like, <laughs> it's just like, I, I, it, it just, you can read it between the lines, you know? Yeah. Uh, just, yeah, we go get drunk on cheap beer and just dance and sweat and like, you know, but it, it it's, uh, it just sounds kind of fucking rad. Like that cheap mm-hmm. apartment scene, like when in my band days in like my hometown, we were doing that. There were like, oh, this person, there's a like a tiny little taste of this, you know, like, yeah. oh, these people live above this record store in this weird kind of apartment. Have you been there? Blah, blah, blah. They do. They do living room shows every once in a while. Yeah. Like uh, it just reminded me so much of, of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and and Peter and Mike kind of became the center of this because you know how just like there there is just a party house. It doesn't matter who lives there. Like, yeah. it, just, it just comes with built in party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was the purple house in my was one of the ones in my, my hometown was called the purple house. Yeah. Uh, you know, for some reason, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was very imaginative, but yeah, that, that was like one of the party houses. Yeah. We, uh, yeah. we lived, uh, we lived next to the party house in my neighborhood, uh, off of the campus of university, university of Cincinnati. It was the party house because it had like a 20 by 30 foot, um, front deck. Ooh, yeah. attached to the front of it which like yeah like that is that like that is regulation size for beer pong and it was intolerable living next to that yeah yeah, yeah. it wasn't like good party it wasn't this kind of party yeah that's, 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 like, yeah, that's, that's a bad kind of party yeah yeah that, that's like a frat frat house yeah, kind of party. yeah. it sounds like bad parties yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um but like P- pylon i i'm not that not that crazy on love tractor i can get down with actually the um yeah I I have uh, the Pylon Greatest Hits CD mm-hmm. um and they have some songs that are kind of good I I learned about them because REM covered one of their first big hits uh, Crazy which mm-hmm. we'll talk about it when that that comes up uh, end up on their their B sides compilation um and I was kind of like kind of into it they're still active um I still I found like a some live footage of them that's more recent oh wow um that's kind of cool to watch 
Um, and I think that there are the one of the reasons why Aria made it and some of these other bands didn't is because they translated to, to album uh, good. Yeah. So when like watching Pylon, I was like, you know what? If I was drunk in a basement and this was going on, I would fucking lose my mind and like mm-hmm. dance and be really into it at that age. Yeah. Um, but later in the cold light of morning, when I'm like sitting down drinking coffee and I want to listen to an album, I don't want to listen to it at all. Right. You know, and like get you a man that can do both is like, <laughs> is, you know, the Aria motto with this. Yeah. Um, Love Tractor. I don't know anything other than a couple songs I found on YouTube. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think they're pretty cool, too. Um, they really lean into the Southern thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm down with it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. um, th- th- I, I am, too. Like, I like it, yeah. too. There's there's some other bands that are kind of big around this time um, that were part of the scene. But the important thing is kind of establishing house parties and small club shows where it was dirt cheap to get in, yeah. uh, you know, and just get drunk, dance. Yeah. And again, parenthetical screw. So. <laughs> yep. I- implicit between the line screwing. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, th- this is also so as like a as a southern college art town, um, kind of they had this new wave insurgency that happens um, kind of yeah. in the in, in the shockwaves that would lead up to the second British invasion or whatever. Um, and WUOG, the college station had to be shut down for three whole months because the folk and jazz kind of NPR crowd were in just this constant conflict with the new waivers. Yeah. Like they were fighting over this small little bit of like air airspace. Like, and I've been, you know, like college radio stations, there's not that much special about them. Yeah. So, you know, it, I, I managed one, like it's very difficult to, to imagine that being like a seed for that kind of conflict but it, that, like yeah. that was the time <laughs> yeah it was it was a it was a time of con- you know it's like i'm just imagining a helicopter shot and all along the watchtower playing as like you can across Athens, georgia and <laughs> just talking about this conflict because it was it was a time where there we were on this kind of uh musically you know this kind of early college rock mm-hmm. reacting against disco yeah. uh and and you know not leaning into you know, the super cool synthesizers. Yeah. yeah. The kind of dirtier version of in between yeah. us. So it's like punk landed dissolved, mostly lived on the, on, on the West coast, but new wave took root because of the new, the, the influence from new, from New York. Yeah. And so like that, like that, that was the inroad that this kind of yeah. really weird stuff had. And the, the, uh, something that, um, I know Peter Buck has said in interviews and is kind of thing is that the, the band wouldn't be around. It would not have been the same if they had been in California or New York, mm-hmm. um, because there's, you know, all eyes are on you and you kind of go from zero to 60, mm-hmm. you know, you're not allowed to kind of be a band that just kind of plays, plays clubs and does this kind of party scene for as long as you need to, to kind of mature mm-hmm. and kind of matriculate as songwriters. And uh, that's that's part of it. So the scene, this kind of this environment was instrumental to the band being what it was. Yeah. 100 percent. Yeah. So we mentioned earlier, Kathleen O'Brien was, uh, you know, again, uh, somebody who was involved with WEOG and part of the scene and played with a band called the Woggers. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, people people from WEOG who, you know, was a friend with both Peter, Peter and Michael and then and then Mike and Bill and recognized that they, hey, you guys would probably get along and knew that they were playing and practicing and then kind of pressured them to put on a show. Yeah. Yeah. Like you guys should be a band, yeah. you know, uh, kind of, you know, play the matchmaker was make, uh, was uh, Will Smith's hitch. <laughs> you are, um, and there's this legendary church show mm-hmm. uh, in Peter and Michael's house. <laughs> um, April 5th, 1980 is when the, the band was kind of born. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a birthday party for her. Like, yeah. that's how she got them to play this thing. She's like, hey, do it for me as a favor for my birthday. Um, what a cute way for a band to start. I know, right? As a favor <laughs> for their friend's birthday. 
Um, and you know, a couple hundred people showed up, like it was ended up being a big deal, mm-hmm. um, including several people who were from other clubs who did booking and stuff. And that's kind of what set this momentum. Yeah. Um, if you want to get a sense of what they sounded like at this point, it's so different than, than, oh, than what they, what they eventually committed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's insane. a, on, I found a pitchfork article, uh, and there's YouTube links that corresponding that the earliest known live performance, mm-hmm. um, that'll be in the recommended listening section of the yeah. show. Um, it's bonkers. Yeah. Uh, like early REM is so weird and kinetic and fast yeah um it's before it's you know get you a band that can do both like it is uh <laughs> you know it is this the kind of thing where if i was drunk at a, at a church i would love dancing around to this and eventually maybe later that night i would get to touch the tit <laughs> and then the <laughs> like but it was it's it's pretty you know i don't want to say unlistenable but like it is it's hard to appreciate yeah it's uh it's 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 very fast and when they're <laughs> And I, I put I put this in the notes here, but it was it was impossible for for me not to listen to that and imagine a future where they leaned into that fast sloppiness with Michael Stipe's kind of clear and shouted vocals. Like they were on the road to be the Dead Kennedys. Like if they yeah. if they came up in New York, that's what they would be. It's very <laughs> like yelpy and percussive the vocals. Yeah, and that doesn't. Uh, eventually, Michael Stipe would learn to use that. Yeah, in the middle of songs, but it doesn't lean into its strengths as a vocalist, which has to do with these kind of like insistent vowel sounds yeah uh so there wasn't a lot of space for that uh vocally it's also like a lot of covers um everything you know so they wrote for this show they wrote like specifically like 10 original songs 10 covers and some of those originals would end up on albums uh, later so we'll we'll talk about some of those like very early songs that actually made it Mm -hmm. um the uh but you know 10 originals 10 covers um all of which played at like blinding speed yeah um you know and and listening to those old songs are, are are really really quick um, they also, uh, REM was not the name no. at this point. Um, they had a bunch of working names. Um, the most enduring and best of the working names was the twisted kites. And they yeah. did a couple shows under that name. Um, not great, but better than the alternatives, <laughs> the alternatives, namely cans of piss or slut bank. Can you imagine if we were doing this show for slut bank? <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it would be, it would start with like a half hour disclaimer. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> slut bank podcast. No, 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 no shame intended. Yeah, heading down to the slut bank. Like <laughs> <make a> withdrawal. What <laughs> make, make a deposit? Yeah. I'm not gonna make a withdrawal, buddy. <laughs> yeah, there, 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 there is there, there is nothing good down that joke road. No, no, um, no. <laughs> but, um, but they, but they got the names just by kind of inviting people to write on the walls. Um, well, yeah. yeah, well, I, I've read a couple different, so that's how they got the, kind of got those, those names, uh, the yeah. actual name REM, uh, kind of apocryphally, I don't know how true it is, but yeah. Michael Stipe picked it randomly out of a dictionary, Okay, yeah. uh, is what he says. But Michael Stipe also does that early Bob Dylan thing of lying Yep. Uh, in interviews and stuff where like yeah. he is the mystery art fuck. So sometimes he will, you know, uh, kind of just make up things yeah, like yeah. that. So I don't know how true that is, but that's kind of the story. Yeah. And the, and the story that built up around it is, Hey, REM is, you know, the, the portion of sleep where you're dreaming or whatever, but also it's just, it's just three letters and you can make it mean what you want. Yeah. Which is again, kind of ties into their thematic holes. Yeah. Um, so they, they kind of became the toast of the town, like became an in-demand thing, uh, in town specifically. Right. So they would go to different clubs, uh, you know, different club promoters with that church show, invited them to play. Um, they would play at these, these different venues. Um, and house parties and the like, and started kind of, you know, slowly touring, um, and around Georgia. Um, and there is this kind of rivalry between Atlanta mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and Athens where like people in Atlanta did not 
care for them. And people kind of regionally did not really care for them either. This is the time when they were doing a lot of that, like playing for nine guys and the sound guy. Yeah. Kind of thing a lot of the time. Yeah. Little pizza places and shit. <laughs> like, but, but they would go and do that one night and then go and play in Atlanta for 4,000 people. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. And, and then immediately go back to, you know, nine guys and a sound guy. Yeah. Uh, c- 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 kind of thing. And during this, like nobody in Athens really knew what to make of them because they were trying to cultivate um, at least the sense that I got is that they were trying to cultivate this, the, you know, the, the, this arty reputation. And here you have this party band doing covers. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was a lot of dismissive. So it's, it's kind of weird. I mean, obviously, uh, opinions were mixed, right? Yeah. So they were definitely popular there. Mm-hmm. Like people were, people in Athens liked them a lot. Yeah. I think that there is, I mean, it really just seems, like I said, it seems like weird jealousy to me. Yeah. I know that's a, that's an easy dismissal to make when somebody criticizes something that's yeah, successful, yeah. but that's what like it feels a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, you like to see you do better. And also you're doing this very populist yeah, thing. Yeah. You're doing, you're doing covers, you're doing really danceable music. Um, you know, it's not, it doesn't have a clear message, you know, to it. Like I could see it just being a, a reaction against that. Yeah. Um, it's what it kind of feels like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after they toured for a little bit, they decided, Hey, you know, we're going to want to, um, make a tape but the, the the sense that i get is that the goal for making a tape wasn't to have something to to sell they pretty much just use them as demos um, yeah they wanted to send single. them to clubs to yeah. get shows yeah yeah that was that was the the entirety uh of kind of the point yes. um so they, they kind of did these early uh early tapes with uh mitch easter who's yeah. going to be very important uh to the band and jefferson holt are the two uh kind of and burtis downs i guess all three of them kind of show up yeah here. the uh, these three people uh we should talk about briefly without going into everything um jefferson holt as uh, their manager mm-hmm. um kind of before this uh kathleen o'brien was kind of their unofficial manager for a time yeah um but i, I believe so and mm-hmm. then uh, jefferson holt took over as their kind of fifth member yeah um mitch easter uh had a garage studio um drive-in. Called the, yeah called the drive-in which is very cool um mm-hmm. it was like an indoor outdoor kind of thing yeah uh, which is super super cool uh kind of you know heard them and and courted them to record yeah uh the uh uh record their early stuff. And, uh, he's kind of really responsible for a lot of their early sound. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of, it's really cool to hear that. Um, yeah. you know, like, like Mitch Easter. So, so he kind of joined them as this, you know, like, Oh, he was the, the fifth of the, you know, the, like the fifth member of them, um, kind of creatively and kind of constantly, all of these labels were trying to cut him out of it. Like, yeah. okay. Uh, you, you've had a lot of fun there in your little studio. Let's let the pros do it. But like, yeah. they pretty much always ended up going back to him because they like, in his very they, early days. Yeah. Cause yeah. eventually they do record with other people. Of course. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, Mitch Easter, Jefferson Holt, and then Burtis Downs is their lawyer, mm-hmm. um, who shows up a lot in these books and it's really hard to see, like, I understand, I know what a lawyer does, <laughs> like I'm not an idiot, but it's just kind of weird how important he is to the band. Like he, it's just kind of weird. He shows up as often as he does when yeah. like legal issues don't. <laughs> you know, things that would seem like he would be germane to. Yeah. Aren't really talked about, but he's kind of the other, they've got like three fifth members. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, uh, Jefferson did some sexual harassment and yeah. got kind of kicked off their team. So that's kind of sad, but we're about, you know, 10 years out from that. Right. 10, 12 years out from that. Yeah. Burtis Downs was important for kind of negotiating, like getting them out of the hip tone disaster. That's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like that, like helps them get on IRS in, in good footing. Well, the, uh, the hip tone and then the, um, what is it? The, the, uh, dash topes. Oh yeah. 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 So let's, uh, let's talk about that. So first, um, they make this demo tape, um, with, uh, Jefferson Holt. Yes. Um, that has uh, three songs on it, sitting still, um, radio for Europe and white tornado. Yeah. 
Um, and these, I actually kind of dig these mixes mm-hmm. of these. And um, these are early versions of these songs that are not super well known. Um, this again was that tape that was not really meant to be commercial. Like people to get their hands on it, but it was meant for demos. Right. Um, and uh, White Tornado is one of the earliest songs as well as instrumental kind yeah. of surf rock song. Yeah, incredibly surfy. Yeah. Um, the there's another early version of Radio for Europe that is well more well known that we'll talk about here in a second. Yeah. This is the this is the version that would end up on Eponymous. Kind of the the, yes. the first collection, like Radio for Europe, is a is a song that they did a lot of versions of, um, and I think that each of the each of the mixes has something to you know like like something to yeah. their credit. This one is incredibly trebly, um, yeah. which again is kind of this foundational thing about the band is that they lean on that treble in a huge way. This one isn't the um, the Dead Letter Office one or the eponymous one. The Hibtone one is. Oh shit! I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Um, it, it is confusing because there's lots mm-hmm. of lots of stuff there. Yeah. Um, there's some other kind of big songs that they played a lot around here that are kind of important in their cosmology without being committed to tape. Yeah. Um, so we we want to make sure we cover some of that stuff because I'm interested in outtakes mm-hmm. and things. Um, so there's a song called uh, Narrator. Yes. I hear. Which is like, God, what is this nonsense? It's like a <laughs> rockabilly Elvis, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, like we, we wouldn't hear this again until like that one joke line in Man in the Moon. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like during that post-chorus bridge or pre-chorus it's bridge. Ridiculous. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, it's you know. incredibly motor mouthed. Like this is yeah. the, like, you know, I, I appreciate Michael Stipe. Like, you know, he had to refine that. Like he had to, he had to refine his whole steez as he got up to, you know, becoming, becoming himself. This does not work. It is incredibly no, no, no. awkward. I think this is, this is not a really good song. Um, some other songs that came up later were, uh, you know, end up being, uh, so like just a touch mm-hmm. is a song that is written around here. You can find live stuff of the, uh, of that song, which is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Um, that song later get dusted off for life search pageant. Um, there's a song, do you know, um, I forgot to put this in the email and stuff. Do you know all the right friends? Yes. Yeah. That um, was, um, I, that like I all the right friends was, it's, it's, like, re- it's really good. Uh, but like it is like Michael Stipe had this, had this period where he was writing a lot of like, ki- like kind of like stereotypically mis- misogynistic songs a little bit. Mm. Like the, the original title for all the right friends is like, Oh, I don't want you anymore or something like that. Yeah. 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 Well, there's lots of, I mean, I, whenever I see that kind of stuff, I don't, it's hard for me to think of as misogynist. I think yeah, of it, it's, it, it, was, like, it was the only word that I could try, find. Like it was really juvenile him, a little bit. It, yeah. Trying on traditional love song. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, songs of, from spurn lovers kind of trying on traditional song kind of structure things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's a song that, uh, eventually got recorded. Um, a lot, you know, I think for like the vanilla sky soundtrack hmm. in, you know, in, in the nineties, but, um, was like a live staple and is actually like would have been worth saving. Like it's kind of a good song. Yeah. Um, um, did you, okay. did you, or, sorry, did you run across in like the, the bootleg stuff? Did you run across body count? No, I did not. Body count's really embarrassing. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a really bad song. It's got like military drumming. It's about Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, it's, yeah again, I read about that one. Yeah. It's him trying on this like mm-hmm. kind of woke persona that he would get later, mm-hmm. uh, but just doing it in the most college, like immature shitty way possible. Like, yeah. That that's not a great that's not a great yeah. one. Uh, uh, what is it? Don't don't move to Brockway. I think. Oh sure. Yeah, that yeah. was a Michael Mills joint. Like he wrote that as like a plaintive plea to you know somebody who really liked you know this the, the this woman who was getting ready to move out of town. I like I like that one a lot. Like that yeah. that is another early staple of, for for them. Yeah. So th- so they do they're doing these things, but they just recorded these these three songs on the tape, um, and then they run into uh, this guy, this Johnny Hibbert guy, uh, who moved into town, wanted to make his own label called Hibtone, <laughs> uh, and like approached them about doing like, Hey, I want to record a single with you guys. Like if you give me the, the d- deal was I'll 
put it out and everything in exchange for like the rights. Yeah. You know, I will produce it and stuff. Uh, and then they did a, uh, a mix of it. That's the, the hip tone mix, um, that everyone hates in the band. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, we, they were like, Oh, there's all this argument. Like, is the mix bad? Is the master bad? Is it the pressing mm-hmm. that's bad? Um, but it does sound really weird. It's a really weird mix of the song. Yeah. Um, you can still, it was still wildly successful. Yeah, like I they mean, sold it, tons of copies because it's Radio for Europe and it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good song. Like yeah. it was, it it was the thing that they that they that, that they kind of stumbled on as being incredibly commercially viable. Yeah, you know, while still um, being like patently REM. So when and when it came time to actually record their EP, um, and record, you know, they ended up having to eventually get away from Hibbert. Yeah, Hibbert had this stuff, um, and it was it was contentious, um. They ended up eventually just kind of buying him out because mm. uh, Hibbert was hard up on cash because the hip tones didn't make it. It's something about <laughs> some guy with like hip in his name. Just, I'm going to cause a leave. I'm going to make the gear tone. That's my, my There's something kind of quaint and dorky about yeah, that. That yeah. is like almost charming, but also annoying. Yep. Uh, uh, the, the, the logo for hip tone is pretty funny, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it was uh, it, it was it was Downs who got them out of that deal. Like you said, yeah. hey, you guys can't do this, and the, like the negotiation was really kind of cutthroat that they that they did. They're like, okay, well, we'll just write new songs. You're never going to see a dime out of this, um, because you know we're just never going to publish it. Like, screw yeah. you, you can have it, but you're not going to get anything get anything out of it. And eventually, they got the they got the publishing rights to Sitting Still and um, Radio Free Europe. Europe by um, you know, by giving them like two thousand dollars and yeah. sending them on his way. And that was, uh, you know, they did that before Murmur. Yeah. Um, so they had to do that because those songs do end up on Murmur. Mm-hmm. Um, so this demo, as we talked about, it'll be in the show notes. Um, it's worth listening to. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, it was mostly used to gain shows. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the, the genesis of the band. That's about where we're going to call it for this episode yeah. uh, before we actually talk about their first EP next episode. Yes. So I'm very excited to to kind of to kind of go through these go through these songs like uh, again diving in head first and just kind of you know living <laughs> listening to this music kind of just twenty four seven or whenever I've been listening to stuff it's uh it's great and I really like talking with talking about music with you Gary yeah and yeah like, it's very fun yeah I'm just uh, incredibly excited that we that we're able to do this it is a real it is a real privilege that we can just like make a decision to 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 start this up and people are like yeah we'll, we'll support that. Yeah. Yeah. I hope people like it. Um, you know, when a show starts out, as we always say, it's very important, uh, to get some momentum. So if you do like this, uh, rate and review it, share it with people, um, let people know that, that you like it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and some, someday we'll end up on that pod mass thing. Um, we'll get there someday, kid. Um, Jimmy. Yeah. So, but let people know, let people know about the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're going to, I think it's going to end up being pretty good you know without uh you know to be my most rem self possible and be humble about it but i think that it it at the very least will be fun to do yeah and i like to think that we'll end up making something that's that's you know worth listening to mm-hmm. um out of this uh, i'm also like even just like the the research part of this i'm psyched for me too you know just uh just taking uh, a, a look at uh learning that oh that like there's a ver- like this song was written for life such pageant that's really interesting <laughs> oh wow this is so different like just hearing these things I know so well being recontextualized and hearing like what could have made it 
has been really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would definitely encourage people go, go, go and check out the show notes for this. You know, usually those show notes on other shows, they are, you know, kind of giving a little bit more information about references that we make or, um, you know, kind of just as again, reference material, if we're pulling from something about dark souls or whatever, like this is something that Gary has put a lot of work into, um, putting together like these examples of things like, you know, I, I don't know if I could have found those and Gary's work has been, has been really important for, um, kind of giving me the context outside of the books and stuff that we've, uh, you know, that we've pulled up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing some research for you if you're listening to this. So, yeah. um, at least creating a, a series of links you can check out to kind of get an idea of REM or whatever in this year and what these also rands were. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited. I'm so glad that stuff's available. Um, the other thing you can do if you support the show, you've already done it, you know, because it was a Patreon goal, but, uh, everyone, you know, the show is free. It's not a Patreon exclusive. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're not one of our patrons, if you go to patreon.com forward slash duck TV, um, you can choose to give us a couple bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do so, you get a bunch of cool stuff and you make more stuff like this happen. So yeah. this only happened because of that. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're part of a network as we kind of mentioned at the beginning there where we mostly talk about video game video games and video game related things uh go to duckfeed.tv and check out the, the the huge slate of shows we're you know not getting away from video games but we're broadening we're broadening away from that um but we have just a just a lot of fun stuff things that we're really proud of and we hope that you you know if this is your entry into into us as people who talk about things uh we we, we hope you check those out as well yeah i i feel like most of the uh the things are probably uh most people listening are, it's probably the opposite. True. You know, I, I imagine that they probably came for the video games and are now checking this out, dipping their toes in. And I hope that we can make it worth listening to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's the end of, uh, boy, I feel stupid <laughs> saying oh, it now. Boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. so that's, so that's the end of the show as we know it. Yeah. Uh, and, and we feel fine, but we can't wait to come back next time in two weeks. Mombasa. Mombasa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>